Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. to give you an idea of the sort of world our event happened in here are a few other stories from that year the year in question is 1881 and on march the 1st the cunard lines ss servia the first steel transatlantic liner is launched at Clydebank in scotland march the 12th saw Andrew Watson make his Scotland debut as the world's first black international football player. On July the 7th, the first episode of Carlo Collodi's The Ventures of Pinocchio is published in Italy. November the 9th saw Brahms' Piano Concerto No. 2 premiering in Budapest. And on December the 28th, Virgil Earp is ambushed in Tombstone, Arizona and loses the use of his left arm. And here are a couple of news stories that were in the newspapers at the same time as today's events. On the 24th of November, two steam barges were floated off after colliding on the River Avon below the suspension bridge. The moderator sustained severe damage on her port bow and was taken back to the floating harbour for repairs. Meanwhile, the dart escaped without any damage. The cause of the collision was a barge floating in the centre of the stream, and the dart, in trying to avoid her, attempted to pass on the wrong side and ran foul of the moderator. Now here's a story where the irony really did make me chuckle. A meeting was supposed to be held at Hamilton's Rooms in Park Street in support of the views held by the Anti-Compulsory Vaccination League, at which Professor Newman was expected to deliver an address but was unable to attend due to sudden illness. But the event we'll be talking about today occurred on the morning of the 24th of November 1881 in the old man's day room of the Divides workhouse, where an argument broke out with fatal consequences. Word of the Week And this week, we're going to find out the history of the word. Salary. 
The word salary comes from the Latin salarium, meaning salt money. In ancient times, salt was used for many important things and was often referred to as white gold. It could be used as an antiseptic to treat wounds, as well as preserving food and also as a method of payment in Greece and Rome. As far back as the Egyptian Empire, labourers were paid with salt that they could use to preserve their food. The Roman Empire continued using this form of payment and it took on the name salary for that which was given to workers at the end of the working month. On the morning of the 30th of January 1882, Charles Gerrish, who was sentenced to death at the Wiltshire Hillary Assize for the murder of an old man named Stephen Coleman in the Dividers Workhouse, paid the extreme penalty of the law in Dividers Prison. This was the first private execution which took place within the prison. Wiltshire had been remarkably free from the crime of murder during the previous 20 years. But here are a few other cases that happened before. During the first 40 years of the 1800s, 69 people were hung in Wiltshire, but only 14 were for murder. Five people had died at the hands of the hangman in Devizes Jail since its erection. These were Edward Amor and John Goodman on April the 20th, 1824, for assaulting and robbing Mr Thomas Alexander at All Cannings. George Maslin on the 6th of September, 1838, for shooting Mr Brian Rumbold at Lynham. Rebecca Smith on August the 23rd, 1849, for poisoning her child at Westbury. And Seraphine Manazano on April the 11th, 1860, for the murder of Anastasia Trowbridges at Jollard Royal on November 3rd, 1859. Three executions took place on the top of the lodge at the entrance to the prison and used to attract thousands of spectators from all parts of the county. Since that time, there had been several convictions for murder, but respites have been granted. Of these, perhaps, the best remembered will be the case of Constance Kent. Remember her? The woman accused of murdering her half-brother, Francis Savile Kent, in 1860. I actually covered that particularly gruesome story in episode 4 of season 5, so if you wanted to find out more, just go there and have a listen. Today's Sorry Tale starts around 9am on the morning of the 24th of November, 1881, when a number of aged paupers were congregated in the day room at the workhouse. Amongst them were Charles Gerrish, aged 70, and an old man, Stephen Coleman, aged 77, from Wharton. Coleman was quite disabled and deaf. He had been in the workhouse for about a year, and Gerrish from Devizes had only recently arrived. Gerrish was described by other occupants as of a morose disposition, and known to argue a lot with others. Now, after they'd all had their breakfast and were settling down before the fire, an argument started about the position of a stool in front of the fire, and Gerrish moved it up closer. Coleman, though, insisted upon the stool being kept in its usual position, and words between the two ensued. Eventually, Coleman lit his pipe, walked over to the other side of the room, sat down and smoked, 
saying nothing to anybody. Gerrish also lit his pipe and then picked up the poker and placed it in the fire. He stood up, waiting five or six minutes, until the poker had got thoroughly red hot. Then he took it from the fire, walked across the room to where Coleman was sitting, and without a word, thrust it into the left-hand side of Coleman's neck. Death was instantaneous, as the poker had severed the main artery. This was all done in the presence of three or four other paupers, one of whom Gerrish tried to stab with the poker after he had killed Coleman. Mr Henry Jackson Hassel, the master of the house, was called and immediately ran into the room, saw that Coleman was dead and had Gerrish taken into custody. The murderer then seemed cold and callous, which, coupled with the deliberate nature of the crime, effectually stifled the pity which some of the inhabitants of the town would have felt for his fate. In court, when the charge of willfully murdering Stephen Coleman was read out, Gerrish replied in a firm voice, Not guilty of willful murder, sir. The first witness called for the prosecution was Richard Hayward, aged 63, an inmate at the workhouse. He was in the day room when the murder happened and saw everything as it occurred. He said that he saw Coleman and Gerrish push and pull the stool two or three times before Coleman moved to the far side of the room and smoked his pipe. According to Hayward, Coleman then turned around and said to Gerrish, You old he shan't go no handy at the fire. These were the last words he spoke. Gerrish then lit his pipe and smoked, put the poker into the fire and stood there for about six minutes, watching the poker heat up. The witness, Hayward, asked Gerrish, You are heating that poker main hot. But Gerrish didn't reply. Gerrish then pulled the poker out of the fire, ran across the room and thrust it into Coleman's neck. Hayward then said, Gerrish, you have stabbed the old man with the poker. To which Gerrish replied, Ah, you old and I'll stab you too. Before stabbing the poker towards him. The weapon went through his clothes. Then a fight broke out and Hayward eventually managed to overpower Gerrish and take the poker away from him. When cross-examined by the defence, Hayward said that, I have never heard the deceased and prisoner have a misword before. During the trial, another inmate was called, George Porter, aged 70, and he said that he was in the old men's ward on the day in question. He heard Gerrish and Coleman quarrelling about the store being near the fire and reiterated everything Hayward had said. Inmate Thomas Butt was the one who tried to help Coleman and held him in his arms till he died. William Bond was a porter in the workhouse and said in court that he was asked to go to the old men's ward where he found Coleman lying on the floor with a wound under his left ear with a huge amount of blood coming from it, as well as from his mouth. Gerrish was being held down by Hayward and he had to separate them and lock Gerrish up. Henry Jackson Hassel, the master of the workhouse, told the court that on the 24th of November he was called to the old men's day room and met Gerrish who was coming out. Gerrish said to him, I have done it and you'd better lock me up. Dr. E. N. Carlos was called as a witness and told how he was sent for. He had examined the victim 
and described a superficial burn under the chin, which was three inches long and an inch wide, extending towards the right shoulder. He said that the circular fatal wound was on the left side of the neck, three quarters of an inch wide, the edges of which were charred. The wound passing through the neck severed large veins going through the windpipe, which was full of blood, and it smelt burnt. Inspector Ball said that he went into the workhouse on the day in question and charged the prisoner, who said to him, He threatened me and drew a knife and threatened to stab me. I can defend myself. court, Mr Matthews for the defence said that the law made some allowance for human infirmities and passion, and a necessary ingredient in the charge of murder was the intention to kill. He asked the jury to judge the intention of the prisoner by his actions, but to also take into consideration the surrounding circumstances. He mentioned the age of the man, saying that in ordinary circumstances his life would end naturally anyway. He also mentioned how the two men had never quarrelled before until the stool incident, when apparently the deceased had used a swear word towards the prisoner. He believed that there was no intention to hurt Coleman until Hayward had asked, What are you going to do with that poker? It was then that Gerrish had leapt up and stabbed Coleman. He believed that Gerrish had no intention of injuring Coleman, thinking that Coleman would move out of the way. If he did intend to murder him, would he have done it in front of so many witnesses? If the jury thought the intention was other than to kill, it was their duty to give a different verdict to willful murder. The verdict of manslaughter would be more appropriate. It was at this point that the judge asked the prisoner if he had anything to say, and Gerrish said that it was his duty to sweep the room and saw some dirt under the end of the store near the fire. He then moved the stool to sweep the dirt away, but Coleman moved it back and shouted abuse at him. He also mentioned the fact that a few days before he'd seen Coleman with a knife, and Coleman had said that he'd wanted to kill him. In summing up, the judge pointed out the distinction between wolf murder and some other cases of homicide. Murder need not be in consequence of absolute malice. For if a man fired a rifle in the open street and killed someone, it was murder, though perhaps the murderer had never seen his victim before. It would be murder, because the death was the natural consequence of an unlawful act. Perhaps in the present case, the prisoner did not think he was going to kill the man. Still, if he did an unlawful act, which resulted in death, and without reasonable provocation, the crime was murder. There might be cases in which words would greatly provoke a man to passion, but the law held that blows or a personal struggle only, and no amount of words, reduced murder to manslaughter. Even blows, when the time had allowed the blood to cool, would not so reduce it. The facts in this case are very short but very strong. The two men appear to have never quarrelled before, and after a very few words on the day in question, the prisoner took the poker and killed the deceased. It is my duty to tell you, the jury, that if the prisoner had put the poker into the fire with any other intention, but if his act had the result of killing the deceased, the crime was no other than murder. Without a moment's hesitation, the jury returned a verdict of guilty of willful murder. And when Gerrish was asked if he had anything to say, he simply said, No.
And so the judge placed the black cap on his head and, addressing Gerish, said, Prisoner at the bar, you have been most justly convicted, in my judgment, of cruel murder. You sent an old man out of this world and into the next without any preparation, by a very cruel death, and by an act on your part of deliberate determination. For that, the law of England says that you must die, not indeed without preparation, but by a death that must be at once painful and shameful. As far as I know, there is in this world no hope for you. What there may be in another is not for me to determine, nor even speculate upon it. You will hear about that from others more competent to speak of such a thing to you. I am but a minister of the law in pronouncing sentence upon you, and the sentence I pronounce upon you is not my sentence, it is the sentence of the law of England, and I will say no more than that in this case. I think the law is just and righteous. The sentence of the court upon you is that you be taken hence from the place from whence you came and from thence to a place of execution and that you be there hanged by the neck until your body be dead and that your body be taken down and buried within the precincts of the prison where you were confined before your conviction and may God Almighty have mercy upon your soul. Due to his rather angry and gruff demeanour, Gerish was entirely friendless, and so no one made any effort to obtain a remission for the capital sentence. There were a few opponents of capital punishment who tried to promote a petition, but there was so little interest in putting names onto it that it was pretty useless to forward to the Home Office. After his condemnation, Gerish continued to act with the greatest indifference to the situation he was in, and even the Reverend A.C. Devers, the prison chaplain, had little effect on this. This being the first execution within the prison walls, it was necessary to erect a new scaffold, and this was done in the courtyard near the prison chapel. The representatives of the press were admitted at about half past seven in the morning, and Marwood, the executioner started the proceedings soon afterwards by going to the condemned cell where he pinioned the convict. Garish had slept well during the night and he ate a good breakfast. The chaplain was in at an early hour and remained in prayer with the condemned man until the last moments. Garish maintained his hardened demeanour till the very last and walked with a firm step to the scaffold. The procession from the condemned cell consisted of the governor of the jail, Mr J. Howard, Mr Underwood, the deputy governor, Mr Audrey, the undersheriff, and Maywood, the executioner, about a dozen warders being the only persons present beside a few reporters. The chaplain in faltering tones read the burial service, and the solemn words had a painful effect upon all present. It was not far to the scaffold so it didn't take them long to get there and put the wretched man under the beam. After Marwood fastened and pinioned the straps around his leg, the rope, the same one that had been used for the execution of Lefroy, was placed around his neck and the white cap was adjusted. Then Marwood quickly went round the rear of the scaffold and drew the bolt. A drop of nearly ten feet was calculated and death was instantaneous. The fall of the drop was distinctly heard outside the jail. 
The executioner remarked that he had never executed a man who seemed so entirely indifferent to his fate as Gerrish had been. The body remained suspended for an hour when it was taken down and placed in the rudimentary coffin provided, and an inquest was subsequently held before Mr. G. S. A. Whalen, the borough coroner. When the customary evidence was given and the usual formal verdict returned, a crowd numbering between 400 and 500 people assembled outside the jail and witnessed the hoisting of the black flag. Deputy Chief Constable Baldwin and Superintendent Bull were outside, but didn't have to intervene as the crowd rapidly dispersed as soon as the black flag was hoisted. Are you that weird one in your friends group that loves to watch true crime documentaries? Have you ever wanted to learn more about the lesser known crimes? And are you fascinated with ghost stories? I'm Hannah, the creator, editor, and host of Murder Bucket, a podcast that talks about, get this, murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Join me every Tuesday, wherever you listen to podcasts, to get the inside scoop on some of the most interesting topics in the true crime world. I am also very active on social media. You can find me on Instagram at MurdBucket, Facebook at BucketMurd, and Twitter at TheMurderBucket. In today's news, boffins in Bristol have discovered that should you be attacked by a group of clowns, always go for the juggler. Back in the day facts. And so we start with the 27th of May 1927, when the Ford Motor Company ceases manufacture of the Ford Model T and begins to retool plants to make the Ford Model A. On the 28th of May 1588, the Spanish Armada, with 130 ships and 30,000 men, set sail from Lisbon in Portugal, heading for the English Channel. It'll take them until May the 30th for all the ships to leave port. Also on the 20th of May, but in 1968, Fantasy Records releases the self-titled debut album Credence Clearwater Revival on leader John Fogerty's 23rd birthday. It features their cover of Dale Hawkins' Susie Q. On the 29th of May, 1953, Edmund Hillary and Sherpa Tenzing Norgay become the first people to reach the summit of Mount Everest on Tenzing's adopted 39th birthday. On the 30th of May, 1990, Croatian Parliament is constituted after the first free multi-party elections, today celebrated as the National Day of Croatia. On the 31st of May, 1911, RMS Titanic is launched in Belfast, Northern Ireland. 
on the 1st of June, 1495, a monk, John Corr, records the first known batch of Scotch whisky. And lastly, on the 2nd of June, 1953, the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II at Westminster Abbey becomes the first British coronation and one of the first major international events to be televised. Well, I'm afraid that's the end of today's show. But don't worry, because I'll be here, same time, same place, next week. But before I go, I'd like to thank those who really brought today's story to life. And this week, they are Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio, and Molly Jeffries, Joe Wilson, and David Brindley-Hale from St. Stephen's Drama Group. It really is such great voice talents as these that makes this show what it is. Thank you, guys. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>